Welcome back to Cutting Through the Noise. Today we talked with Ken Fickler, Chief Executive Officer at Gaze. Ken's team is developing a test for cannabis impairment and not just cannabis use. It was a fascinating discussion on where the idea came from, how it all works, and what's next for this exciting Missoula startup. I know you're gonna like it, enjoy. Ken, great to have you. Uh, Ken, for those listening, we're talking a little bit about Gaze today. I wanna introduce our listeners and I tried to do it justice, but if you wouldn't mind just from the founders, you know, from the founders brain into the microphone, what, what is Gaze? Yeah, so we are building a real-time impairment detection platform starting with cannabis. And the idea really behind Gaze is that um, eye movement is a very strong predictor of what's happening in your brain. And um, it's been used for a lot of years by law enforcement to detect impairment from a broad variety of substances. Essentially, every class of impairing substance has a unique way in which it impacts eye movement. Um, there's no device right now in the market that can detect real-time um, cannabis impairment. The way that THC works in the body is that uh, it is metabolized pretty differently by people. It has um, a lot of impacts by, uh, from tolerance. And it also um, binds to fat in the body. It's lipophilic. And so it um, is very slowly released over time. So you can end up with someone who is a heavy user of cannabis having uh, THC in their body for over a month since the last use. Uh, what all that means basically is that you cannot simply look at the amount of THC in the body and try to understand what the impairment being experienced is. So it's very different from alcohol in that respect. And that's been really confounding for um, people trying to understand how to measure cannabis impairment. And so by looking at eye movement instead, we can get to a very precise determination of what's happening in the brain and therefore the impairment being experienced without measuring the THC in the body as a proxy for impairment. This is a tricky one, right? Because they do have a way to easily and predictably measure alcohol. Right. So, okay, DUI, it's illegal, and th above this blood alcohol content, they can do breathalyzers. And, right. and then you hear those stories about okay, well, someone's going to fight this in court. And then there's all sorts of, well, what was the person, was the person chewing gum and was it mint scented? And did that impact the breathalyzer? <laughs> I'm guessing these are all things you have to think about when, because what sort of tools are law enforcement using now to, right. to measure this? Are they? Yeah. Alcohol is, is, uh, really convenient in that you can look at the amount of alcohol that's in the body and it's very linear, linearly metabolized. Um, and so you can very precisely understand how impaired someone is based on the amount of alcohol in their body. And there are, is some impact from tolerance, but for the average per person, there's, um, it's very predictable. If you look at uh, 0.08 BAC concentration in the body, that person is probably too impaired to be driving. That's the basis of our laws today. And for any substance other than alcohol, it doesn't work that way. Um, cannabis is very challenging. And so what has happened over the years is what's called a drug recognition expert officer is um, kind of the highest trained officer at detecting drug impairment. They go to a special school. It's very hard. Not all officers can pass. There are not enough of these drug recognition expert officers in the United States. And um, what they do basically is they go through a 12-step evaluation, um, which is intended to sort of tease out the indicators of impairment that are being displayed by someone. And based on these evaluations, they can say, okay, I, um, you know, I'm observing certain movements of the body, certain muscle tone, certain pulse rate, and certain eye movements. And based on this, I can very 
you know, reasonably precisely say this person is impaired on some class of substance. Yeah, so it sounds like for a rural police department, how could they ever, how could every police department possibly have this person? Yeah, it's, it's a really challenging issue. And so there are um, drug recognition expert officers that end up having to go pretty long distances to do um, evaluations. As cannabis has gotten legalized, too, um, states have attempted to legislate a limit of THC in the body, just like uh, the point of weight for alcohol. What's important to know about that, and those are called per se limits, and for most states that falls somewhere between 2 and 8 nanograms per milliliter bodily fluid. What's important to know about that is that there has never been a study that has shown that any predictable level of impairment can be determined by measuring THC in the body. So these laws, these per se laws, have absolutely no corroborating science behind them whatsoever. And states are uh, being challenged by these all the time. There's actually uh, a case that went to the Supreme Court in the state of Washington last, um, I think, last year. And the, the argument was basically that, you know, the person was saying that they hadn't used cannabis in 24 hours, but they were still over the per se limit that the state had established. Uh, and that basically meant they were charged with DUI for not for for previously using cannabis, not being currently impaired. That's a that's a huge challenge if you're thinking about yeah. an equity and justice standpoint. Totally, and also just you know people have heard that oh one drink per hour if you're planning on driving, which I don't know that that probably doesn't back up uh, the the science probably doesn't back <laughs> that up. I'm not I'm not. There's a lot of yeah, body not, weight and tolerance <laughs> issues that right. come into play there. Not encouraging <laughs> that metric as a as a as a barometer for you, but I feel like with recreational marijuana use, people don't have a th- there is no guide or you know yeah, okay, it's, if you did this much it's okay but if you did this much it's not okay it's phenomenally complicated for a recreational user to know if they've had too much to be driving and so i think that causes probably a lot of really unsafe behavior and i'm not opposed to cannabis legalization i think there's a lot of really good reasons that that should probably happen um, but i think it needs to be done safely um, for the yeah. sake of you know both our roads and our workplaces we have to know if someone is too impaired to be driving. Yeah. So you have a background, Ken, as the chief development officer at the state of Montana. Uh, you've done some angel investing in the past, but not a background in law enforcement. Where did this Where did this interest arise? How did you yeah. fall on, into gays? So while I was... Um, Chief Business Development Officer for the state of Montana, which is the the head of economic development for the state, I was studying the issue of recreational marijuana. Um, At the time, Montana was a medical-only state. I thought that it was likely we would see a recreational ballot initiative sometime soon and um, was trying to understand, one, would that pass? Two, what would the impacts be? Um, I, you know, based on, on my research, thought that it probably would pass if we were to see a recreational ballot initiative in the state. Um, that has since come to pass, of course. And mm-hmm. so my next step was, okay, what's going to happen if, if it happens and, and does pass? Both from you know, an economic point of view as well as you know, what are the other impacts of the state we can expect from you know, what, what sort of tax revenue and what are the um, sort of exogenous effects that we can anticipate and in talking with people, it became clear that business owners were very concerned about marijuana 
impairment in their workplace. Um, and law enforcement was really the first place that I heard about this, there was, that there was no device to check for impaired drivers, which seemed crazy. We're going to legalize an impairing substance, but we have no device, no tool to check for impairment on the roadways. That seemed really crazy. And I was immediately struck with, mm. um, you know, the opportunity there. It seemed like a huge market and a very clear need. Um, so I had intended originally just to make an angel investment in whatever company was going to do it right. So I started looking around and reading about it, reading some studies. And what becomes extremely clear when you start reading any of the science behind um, THC in the body and marijuana impairment is that you can't simply use THC as a proxy for impairment. There are mountains of evidence saying that. The government's own reports say that. Um, but there are still marijuana breathalyzer companies that are trying to bring a device to market, which are effectively completely useless unless you're in a jurisdiction where cannabis is still illegal. Um, they are only useful for establishing prior use. Same with uh, saliva tests, same with blood tests. You can tell if someone has used cannabis previously, but you cannot tell if they're impaired currently. So that became very clear very quickly, and I then started looking around, okay, who's doing an eye movement test or who's doing some other um, reaction time test or some way to test for impairment that's not just using THC as a proxy. And I didn't, I wasn't impressed with anything that I saw. You know, there are a couple of companies that are sort of dabbling in the space, but um, the, the path that we're going seemed very obvious to me and no one was doing it. So um, my job had a definite timeline and, uh, you know, I was part of the cabinet for the governor of, of the state of Montana. And so when his term was over, he was termed out. My term was also over. So I had this looming deadline, and this was a really interesting problem to me. And I thought, why not? You know, this, this is a huge problem that I can solve. It's, uh, you know, very clearly needed. And I, I think I have it figured out. I think I know how to go about this. So when, when my job was over, that's what I did. <laughs> that's incredible. I remember meeting you when you were in that position and meeting some of your crew there and the idea that, oh, that, that, um, that position is ending seemed so crazy for a lot of people. I'm sure to think, oh, you, you, you just don't know when, um, sorry, you just don't know when your job might end. Uh, I think for some people that's a nightmare. I'm guessing for you being entrepreneurial, being not adverse to risk uh was that i mean of course you were bummed that you know that your team was being broken up and all that work might might be uh sort of stopping but um i don't know am i am i right on that 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 was maybe something that you were looking forward to that hey it's a next chapter yeah i mean i i think that there was a certain attractiveness to the fact that that job had a definite timeline to it um I mean, it, it does feel risky, and it would probably have felt even riskier if I'd had, you know, real responsibilities like child at the time. Sure. Um, <laughs> I think, though, that, you know, for people like me, that has some attractiveness, though, because I knew what my timeline was to get in and do the most good I could in the shortest amount of time. Um, mm -hmm. I knew that I couldn't continue to do the work I was doing. And so I had to understand what's possible in the timeline I had. And um, I, I knew every single day that I needed to get something 
accomplished against my goals in order to um, feel like I was successful in that position. Yeah. And then Gaze, so talk to us about where Gaze is at now. You know, the podcast, Cutting Through the Noise, we talk a lot about taking products to market and marketing in general. But with with this product, um, it's not one where you where you might just be able to say, oh, yeah, we're going to get some early users and see how it goes. Or maybe it is. So talk to us about how you take – because it's, it's a hardware. It's a piece of hardware. Yeah, so basically what we have done is we created an automated version of the drug recognition expert eye tests. So these are very defined um, tests. And so all we did basically is we took the training manual for the drug recognition expert um, school and we programmed the tests to run in a VR headset. Uh, The VR headset has embedded eye tracking sensors. And so um, as these tests run, we capture really great eye movement data and can then take that eye movement data and evaluate it using machine learning and statistical algorithms to understand whether or not the eye movement data shows signs of impairment. Um, We also capture eye movement video throughout that process, which is really useful to law enforcement as a piece of evidence, Uh, but also for businesses. If they were to be sued by an employee, they can um, show that in court and have an expert witness say, well, yeah, here in the data we are here in the the video, we see a sign of impairment. Mm Got it. I know I've talked with folks that are launching education startups and trying to get into school districts, and that is a big barrier to jump over. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape. I don't know that I've ever talked with an entrepreneur, a startup founder that's getting into law enforcement. What's that like? Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> the law enforcement um, sales cycle is insanely long. I would imagine. That's been challenging, to yeah. be frank. Um, you know, we have, I think, extremely strong interest. I've been to a couple of law enforcement conferences, and we're sort of the cool kids at the conference, right? Mm-hmm. We've got our booth is surrounded by officers at any given time trying the product and talking to us, and it's the feedback is amazing. Um, but translating that interest into sales takes a long time. Um, you know, I was talking with another entrepreneur in Missoula, actually, about this recently, and he said from the time that he starts talking to a law enforcement agency, he sets a timer for 18 months. And if they hit, months. if they hit, um, if they can get a sale in 18 months, he feels like he's doing well. So for a startup, that's really challenging, right? Yeah. You've got, um, you know, typically not even that much runway. And right. so you are, you're sort of playing a long game with short game money. And that's yep. tricky. That is tricky. But the contracts themselves are sticky. Once they, Very. once you, once you can get into uh, a force, I'm guessing that you know that you're in. Yeah. Um, so we were able to launch early into law enforcement with a product that just runs the um, runs the automated eye test and captures video evidence of impairment. And we weren't doing any evaluation of the data at that point at all. Um, and so we launched that in. Uh, uh, May of this year of 22 and um, have had good response on that. We've got a number of really high profile departments that are doing evaluations on it. We've sold a handful of units, but you know, it really does take time to get these contracts worked through and run through all the, you know, multiple levels of bureaucracy mm-hmm. and city council meetings and state concerns. And, you know, there's just a lot of layers to get through any of these departments. Yeah. The device itself you know, it, it sounds like there's a lot of data and science behind it. 
talk to me about conversations you've had with legal professionals on how something like this holds up in court. Mm-hmm. If a police force uses this, they, they want to keep impaired drivers off the street. If they use gaze to identify an impaired driver, can that is that driver then charged in court with a DUI, driving under the yep. influence? So this gets a little um, <clears throat> complex and nuanced, but yeah. uh, basically the way it works is our product runs, and the reason that this was very obvious to me that we should be using the tests that we're using is that they have been approved and there's uh, precedent behind them in all 50 states and Canada um, and several other countries as well. And so we know that these tests have um, you know, a long history of use. We know that they're sensitive to impairment from cannabis and you know, many other substances. And so automating those tests was very obvious to me. And that's um, something that none of our competition is doing. And so you know, basically the way it works now from a legal perspective is that um, the video is useful as evidence. That is a, as a piece of evidence that can be admitted into court. The, um, when we launch the cannabis impairment detection functionality, which we're hoping to do um, very shortly, that will be useful um, as a way to establish probable cause. Uh, there's sort of two classifications of tool that is used in DUI. There's what's called evidential and, and non-evidential. Um, so the portable breath test, the little handheld breathalyzers that cops use on the side of the road, those have never been accurate enough to pass an evidential standard. Mm. And so they are non-evidential, but they're useful to establish probable cause. Gaze is in the exact same legal category, and so is essentially a stand-in for PBT, for portable breath test, for cannabis. What we hope is that there will eventually be, and I'm sure there will eventually be, a pathway for an evidential cannabis product, but currently that doesn't exist. So as soon as that pathway is established, we'll start going through it. Um, I anticipate that being a somewhat um, (laughs) long-term process, probably be drawn out. Um, For now, though, like that process doesn't even exist, so we have no ability to try to become an evidential product yet. Got it, got it. Yeah, that makes sense. This is really cool, Ken. I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty excited on this idea. This is gonna be, yeah. This is really cool. It feels to me like I see, I see these cannabis shops popping up, and wherever you're listening to this, I'm sure you can relate. I was just on the East Coast, and the same thing was happening. I see these. I was in Maine. So if you're in a state that hasn't allowed it yet, which has got to be pretty few now. Yeah, there's 38 states that have medical cannabis right now and 19 have recreational and we've got another four states with recreational on their ballots in november oh, wow so yeah nationally it's pretty popular yeah like, the plurality of states yeah. have legal access to cannabis and mm-hmm. we're very likely going to see you know nearly half the states have legal access to recreational cannabis yeah. by the end of this election cycle and it feels to me which is why i'm excited about this product it feels to me like a lot of the a lot of the bigger bureaucracies statewide are really far behind on this. They it's happening. There are these stores, but then like you, like you said, you have these questions. Hmm. I bet there's going to be a lot more people yeah. smoking. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and hmm. I bet there's going to be some people driving while they're doing this. And yeah. So this is this is exciting. Um, States for the most part have really shot from the hip when they're trying to legislate around this issue. You know. Yeah. These are typically ballot initiatives, which means state legislators legislatures don't really um, get a say in whether or not this is going to become legal. And so 
the legal framework is pretty poorly developed um, until it, it passes. And then suddenly states are like, oh, my gosh, we have to figure out how we're going to catch impaired drivers. And so they, they legislate something um, that's sort of completely inappropriate for the problem, yeah. like a per se limit. And then they're surprised when, um, you know, there's a mountain of legal challenges that come down. Right. New York is, is kind of going the other route. They're the only state I've seen that's taking a really science-based approach to understanding how to detect impaired driving. Mm. And so they're actually going through an RFI process right now and cannabis impairment testing, and then they'll do an RFP at some point. And so Got it. they are actually doing, I think, a really good job of um, trying to adopt a technology solution that'll be a good fit to the problem. New York. Everyone look at what New York's doing. Yep. <laughs> follow, that, follow that lead. Uh, your team. So you've been hiring. I've seen job postings from you where I'm in Missoula. You're in Missoula. Uh, sounds like you're hiring. You have hired. Talk to me about if someone's listening and they're like, hey, this sounds really neat. And what, what sort of opportunities are available to them? Yeah. So right now we're hiring for two positions, um, both in sales, so a business development representative and then a director of sales. Uh, the team right now is three. And then we've got quite a number of contractors that work on it part time. Um, we are you know, intentionally keeping the team pretty lean right now and relying heavily on contractors given the state of the capital markets. I don't want to get our burn rate to a point where we can't or we have to make really hard decisions at some point if, um, you know, sales don't keep pace. Mm -hmm. Hopefully that doesn't become a problem. But, you know, for now we're, we're relying on contracted talent a lot. Great. Yeah, I would imagine with an 18-month sales cycle, being elastic is really helpful. Definitely, yeah. And that's... You know, just for the law enforcement market, the commercial sure. market, you know, any safety sensitive position should be test for, tested for impairment. So we're also selling into that market that has a much shorter sales uh, cycle. Yeah, that, but that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Really, the law enforcement problem is the one I set out to solve. And so that's what, yeah, that's our dream. Yeah. Well, I think the mission behind the law enforcement problem, everyone can get behind. And, and of course, the commercial one too. But, uh, it seems like nationally there's trends. Well, we don't want to see somebody in prison for possession or if they if they smoked marijuana f two days ago and they're driving and they still have some THC in there. I don't think people want to see that person locked up. Yep. But if they're if they're driving and, you know, they're impaired and yeah, I don't think you can find, you know, many people in the country that would say that, you know, driving while high is fine. Right. It's. It's not fine. The data proves that. It's very, very clear that it's more, much more dangerous than driving while sober. And so, yeah, I mean, while most people agree that you shouldn't be in jail for cannabis possession, you, you know, should probably face penalties for driving while high. Yeah, right. Not unlike alcohol. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, where can people learn more about gays? Let's send them to, uh, you got... You bet. The website, the LinkedIn, all of it. Let's yeah. So and we can add these to the show notes too. We'll make great. sure to include yeah. them. Our website is gaze g a i z e dot a i. Um, all of our social media accounts are gaze safety at gaze safety, uh, g a i z e safety. Cool. And um, yeah, the the product is in a really good place right now. We are about to launch our cannabis impairment detection functionality. We just completed what we believe is the world's largest clinical trial on cannabis impairment, where we actually uh, brought people in, checked their eyes while sober, got them high, checked their eyes several times while they were high. And uh, based on all that data, we're doing a lot of algorithm development, tuning, 
making sure that there's no algorithmic bias within our um, product right now. One of the things that happens when you train a machine learning model is there's, uh, there's almost always bias that's sort of inherently built in that you have to then try to find and, and eliminate. And so we're in that process right now. But the hope is to, to launch this product very soon, you know, within the next couple of weeks. And a um, couple of weeks. Yeah. Awesome. It's super Heck exciting yeah. time. Very cool. Well, maybe if we're like two weeks out with this episode. So maybe by the time the episode launches, we'll that be great. We'll have some updates. Yeah. Great. Ken, thank you so much for thank joining you. us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for the time. I appreciate being here. Thank you for listening. As always, if you have questions about today's episode, feel free to reach out to us directly here at pintlergroup.com. If you're interested in being a guest, contact us, team, at pintlergroup.com.